Welcome to Grasp Podcast, where we discuss the motivations and experiences that brought educators and researchers to academia. My name is Michael Sandborn, and I am a PhD student in computer science at Vanderbilt University. This is a conversation with Larry Rowland, a tenure-track professor of mathematics at Vanderbilt University, studying number theory. Professor Rowland completed his bachelor's degree in mathematics with honors at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. From there, he completed a PhD at Emory University with Ken Ono, a postdoc at the University of Köln in Germany with Catherine Bringman, and finally, a research associate position at Penn State University with George Andrews. Professor Rowland was also a tenure-track professor at Trinity College Dublin. Professor Rowland's research interests include modular forms, harmonic MOS forms, partitions, and L functions. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. What I usually like to start with, the first question kind of, so your, your background is in number theory, so I guess could you basically describe in a nutshell your journey to number theory, uh, maybe starting with your first exposure to math at a kind of a higher level, maybe if that was in high school or undergrad, what attracted you to mathematics in general, and then kind of what was the journey to realizing you wanted to do math research? How did that kind of transpire? Yeah. So I grew up in a, in a small town without a university present. There was a community college. Um, you know, it was kind of the early days of the Internet or before I had regular Internet access. So I, my interests were kind of dictated by um, uh, like the books that I got from the library or just people that I happened to meet. Um, my parents also didn't uh, don't have college degrees, um, so I, you know, um, I, I I got very interested in I, I subscribed to some science magazines like Scientific American and Discover, and I read those a lot. Um, and I was very interested, honestly, in physics for a long time. Um, and in my early under until my early undergraduate career, I wasn't necessarily sure I would do math or physics. I knew probably something like that, um, but I just you know I just got really weird old books from the library, like not even the best sources of like weird books about black holes or well, other universes or whatever. And I just kind of ate up whatever I could in that. Um, and then I guess in high school, I met a couple of people that were also math minded. And I was very lucky in that in this, um, in this high school, in this small town, like of all the other years that of all the people in all the other classes, there wasn't really anybody else that was like interested in math in the same way that we were. But there were three of us that were all kind of equally interested in it and we were kind of almost math rivals of each other we like would get each other interested in it and um we also got into the game of go if you know that game sure it's kind of like the black and white marbles with the massive state space yeah that's right okay um which recently is since you're doing a phd in computer science you probably know um computers are finally better than humans now at that yes um Quite scary. Which, is, which is a really new development, and for a long time we thought that wasn't going to happen, <laughs> at okay. least us, us Go players. Anyway, so I had this the, these couple friends that I just, um, we, we influenced each other a lot, and I started doing some of the, the high school math competitions, and um, I, I, w I didn't study very hard for them. I just kind of showed up and did them and had fun, and the, there was, the, you know, there's a high school um, sequence of ones like the AMC, et cetera. And I would like progress through the levels of that, but I just did it for fun. Mm -hmm. And I remember at one of these competitions, um, one of these friends, 
uh, told me the proof, uh, Euclid's proof, that there's infinitely many prime numbers. And I had never really seen uh, a formal math proof of that before, or any formal math proofs before. Um, and at first I thought this proof is kind of trivial, like there's not really much going on here. And then I thought, wait, no, this is not at all obvious and I don't understand what's going on at all. And then I thought about it further and I'm like, oh, that's really, that's really brilliant. And I remember, you know, it's like one of those things where I remember where I was and what I was wearing. Um, wow. And it was just a really, it was just kind of a, a light bulb moment and I was really impressed by that. Um, so yeah, so then I, I, you know, I knew I was really interested in it and I, I took all the math classes that I could at the local community college. I had some, um, really great, uh, instructors there. Uh, I think one of them was like a Putnam fellow or very close to a Putnam uh -huh. fellow. And I, I had, uh, I was so surprisingly, there were some really surprisingly fantastic people there. Um, uh -huh. not super research active anymore, but you know, they were, um, they were top researchers or, or, um, top math people at one point, um, in their uh -huh. life. Um, and so, you know, I took like the calculus sequence and differential equations and then just like read where I, what I could. And well, around that time, like Wikipedia was starting, mm -hmm. um, and I would like, but there weren't a lot of great resources. Um, and there wasn't very good math Wikipedia or a lot of good math stuff online. So it was just kind of like little bits and pieces of things as I went, but I was probably mostly interested in, in physics at the time, just because that's the, the resources that I, that I had books mm -hmm. that I could like literally again find at the library sure um except there was uh one book which i have up on the shelf i'm gonna um co-run a, a math competition um oh, at vanderbilt uh, hopefully next year um and you know because that was my exposure and if, if there weren't such competitions i'm not sure that i would have had the same experience with math so and there really isn't one like this in tennessee right now i see um but uh Anyway, I, I'm going to give it as a prize uh, at this competition, but it's it's called The Pea in the Sun, and that one of my friends that I mentioned uh, told me about this, and it's about the, it's about different mathematical paradoxes and, like, ideas of, you know, different types of infinity and little puzzles and wow. geometric things, and uh, it's all building up to the Banach-Tarski paradox. Oh, boy. Uh, have you heard of that one? So, well, first of all, could I clarify, the pea into the sun as in, like, the vegetable, the pea, yes. and then the sun, like... The yes. star that kind of warms yes. us uh, on Earth. Yeah, and I'll then... explain what the name means when we talk okay. about the paradox. Yeah, excellent. The the paradox I have heard of. I mm -hmm. I guess I should uh, qualify this episode at least from my perspective that I didn't get the opportunity that I, I wanted to. I guess to kind of do a deep dive into all of the content that you have on your homepage, which I think is excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, I did I did a little bit of a initial exploration so i guess what i'm asking for is basically your forgiveness in advance because i'll inevitably like butcher some terms or, or what have you but i did go to i forget who gave the seminar i believe it was my senior year in the fall so in undergrad and the paradox is basically if you take and again probably not entirely accurate but if you take a sphere and shatter it you can reconstruct with some magic mm -hmm. two spheres of identical size as the original or something exactly that's right and you can do it with only a finite number in fact a very small number of cuts they're you know they're obviously they're very precise cuts that are you can't actually do with real physical objects that are infinitely uh, complicated um, but you can break a sphere into finitely many pieces and only by tr using translations and rotations <laughs> construct two spheres of the same volume as the original so there's no stretching or creating of new material that's allowed and the name, the P in the sun, is because you can do this a number of times. Um, 
and you can start with something the size of the P and you can keep doubling or you can you can make some bigger sphere. You can start with something the size of, the, of P and make something the size of the sun with a finite number of cuts, which doesn't, you know, that's the paradox. It doesn't seem like it's possible. At the time, this was invented as a way to say that something like the axiom, you have to use something called the axiom of choice, which is now very standard in mathematics. Um, and at the time, this was invented to say, like, okay, that, that doesn't seem like a reasonable axiom that we should be assuming. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, people accept it, and the resolution to the paradox is, if we want to talk about how we measure things like areas and volumes, we just have to say that if we want a consistent theory, some sets are so complicated that they don't have a sense, a reasonable sense of area or volume. If they wow. sort of are fractally or get infinitely complicated in some self-recursive way or something like that, um, so maybe you've heard also of like the measuring the coastline of the uh, of ah, the United Kingdom. Yes, one of uh, Mandelbrot's papers. I, yeah. I'm into. I guess that will be another area that we we can mm -hmm. delve now. But uh, I've been pretty fascinated with fractals. I did a my first year. One of my courses was medical image processing, and I studied uh, basically in a project using the fractal dimension mm -hmm. as a bio so as a biomarker for uh, retinopathy. So basically looking at uh, retinal fundus images that were segmented with uh, the Hessian matrix of the image mm -hmm. and then uh, basically applying the random walker to that to get like kind of a cheap and fast segmentation but then further uh, basically calculating the fractal dimensions so like this multi-scale tiling and box counting uh, to you know get a real number a small real number that's kind of between one and two dimensions and mm -hmm. say you know these values correspond to eyes that may exhibit signs of retinopathy and these are not so much maybe considered healthy but uh i have been pretty fascinated with with fractals in the mandelbrot set but sorry for that uh right no, yeah exactly right so if you look at something like a coastline of a country and you ask a simple question like what is its length there's no simple answer it depends on what length what scale you use what size of ruler you use and you know if you go on google maps and you zoom in it look like lots it can look smooth and then you zoom in and it looks much more rough and there's inlets and peninsulas and things um, and you zoom in further and it just gets more and more complicated eventually I guess in real life you get to the atoms but if you keep zooming in and use smaller and smaller rulers the, the length keeps going up and theoretically you know if it, if it weren't constrained by the size of atoms and it was this fractally type shape that you keep zooming in the, in the length could really be something infinite and it's the same kind of thing that we would say like the length there, there are things like fractal dimension that can make sense of these things um, but you know some things don't really have a well-defined they're too complicated to have a notion of length or volume or area, et cetera. Um, so anyway, this book like really is just like, it actually is readable to a high school student, I think, or like an advanced high school student. And it really shows you actually the full proof of the Banach-Tarski paradox, all illustrated, and it does baby, baby cases along the way, talks about all these paradoxes of infinity, which are really fascinating. Um, and like it, it presents it as a machine. There's an algorithm and there's like a big picture of like, you put take this out this piece of the sphere and you put it in this machine and it's it's like this Rube Goldberg, Goldberg machine uh -huh. that's actually illustrated in the book. Um, oh wow! So that was really that was the first time besides the Euclid's proof that was the first time in a more comprehensive way that I was really fascinated by by mathematics as a whole. Um, yeah, and that that was very influential and that was just something that my friend happened to mention to me and I just like found this book at the bookstore. So and so just to orient the listeners a little bit, could you speak to uh, kind of so your first encounter with the P in the Sun it sounds like you kind of you know had a knack for these higher level mathematics you're certainly drawn to them 
Um, you took the classes at the community college. Mm-hmm. What was the transition like? So what was your age roughly at this time? And then how did you kind of move yeah. to undergrad? You went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yeah. And then I guess, I guess it seems like you obviously yeah. haven't looked back. So I guess, uh, yeah, good good question. Yeah, I found that book and then I would, yeah, I would just like go to Barnes & Noble and see like what, like, you know, Dover, they, they do these reprints of old math textbooks like okay. that are super cheap. So I would just like, save my allowance money and like buy whatever weird offerings they had on like weird topics. And some of them like, you know, were, were too specialized or not the best books for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned um, later in the, the list of questions that you mentioned, uh, but just by coincidence, um, you know, I did a postdoc with George Andrews um, and he has a famous little book on elementary number theory, which is one of these Dover offerings that, that my local Barnes and Noble tended to ha- have these kind of ones. Okay. So I found that randomly, that was my first exposure to number theory. Um, but then, yeah, actually, um, my college career was slightly more complicated than that. I did my first year at Car- Carleton College, okay. um, which was really fantastic. And I had um, I had really fa- fantastic professors there. I took, um, that's that was my first exposure to really high, higher level mathematics in a formal sense, really, you know, proof-based classes and abstraction. So I took um, abstract algebra there and I, I took like a serious physics class there. So I, I really dug more into things. Um, and then I, I actually switched in the middle um, and went to UW-Madison, um, partially because although, you know, Carleton is a really fantastic uh, liberal arts school. Um, and uh, actually, the, one of my close number theory uh, collaborator, uh, colleagues, uh, Carolyn turnage Butterbaugh, is actually, um, she's, she's there now. So there's like an increasing number theory presence there now. Okay. Um, but I, I had the sense that um, I was kind of, they don't have a graduate program, so I was kind of running out of classes to take in a sense. I and um, I really uh, was attracted to UW-Madison because I, you know, I'm from near there, um, from uh, from Wisconsin. And uh, I had, with one of these competitions, I had um, the finalists of the competition were invited there, could meet some professors there. So I had that experience um, going there. And um, I just wanted to be at a place where I felt like, you, you could, you, you know, there, there's a gra- there's graduate students and postdocs and you can like, you walk through the halls or you're in the common room and you can see people discussing these problems late into the night and you just feel that there's this energy of like this research, um, this like high priority and research going on around you. And um, so I went there because I, I felt like there would be more opportunities to interact with just because, you know, there's um, all these different levels of people doing research um, that I, I felt like there would be more research opportunity at, at Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, I just continue taking like the usual track of undergraduate courses um, until and, and then I, I I was actually mostly interested, uh, primarily interested in differential geometry at the time um, okay. and, and manifolds. And um, then I was getting I was starting to get really interested in um, complex manifolds and things. Oh, wow. um, and uh, well, I think also partially because I was I was interested in um, like the physics stuff and the black holes and the string theory and stuff, which wow. I, you know, I, know, I don't um, really know very much about that stuff in a detailed sense, but I, I knew what kind of, st- I, I looked up kind of what you needed to know, what kind of math you needed to know to do that kind of thing. So I started kind of going down that path. Um, and then event, then as an undergraduate, I, I met my um, P, uh, eventual PhD advisor, uh, Ken Ono, who was, that was his final year there. Um, and then I, and then he introduced me to number theory in a serious way, which was the, I'd never taken a number theory class. I just read that, um, book from Barnes and Noble of George Andrews and never mm-hmm. really done much with number theory since then. Um, and then he really turned me on to number theory. 
And then by coincidence now somehow, um, as you know here, uh, I ended up doing the kind of number theory that actually um, does interact with, uh, with physics, with, with string theorists and stuff. So now, now I don't have the formal physics background to like actually understand what string theory really says, but I, you know, do write papers with some of the string theorists and with things that involve black holes and whatever, um, and, and do go to conferences with some of these um, theoretical physicists and stuff just by, I don't know, by coincidence, or maybe that's just, maybe it's not a coincidence. I don't know. Sure. Um, so I, I guess before kind of jumping into your, your core research area, mm -hmm. it seems like you definitely had a survey of fields of math that were uh, kind of had their own substantial uh, research areas in their own right. Uh, and then obviously you mentioned that you were drawn to number theory first through uh, Andrew's book, Little Book of Number Theory, and then uh, Ken Ono, where mm -hmm. you did your PhD at Emory. I guess based on what you know now, you mentioned kind of uh, interplay with physics and black holes and these very, you know, kind of intriguing phenomena, uh, physics that underlie the universe and whatnot. Is there something, I don't know, like transcendental or like magical about number theory where it's kind of like, like, so that obviously the intimate relationship to prime numbers and number theory and, and uh, mm -hmm. I guess all of the overlap it has with various fields of math and then as well as uh, physics. Uh, so I guess, could we just start maybe zooming out? Yeah. What is the goal of number theory? And then from there, we can kind of delve a little bit more into your research area which is modular forms, the definition of which I admit pretty much surpasses my math expertise. So kind of that grain of salt where I'm going to, I'm going to butcher some terms, but um, just so to unpack, what is the goal of number theory? And then um, modular forms, how could you uh, begin to maybe define that in an approachable way? Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with number theory touching a lot of different things. I think that is one of the things that always, um, that I always liked about it, and that was one of the things that that um, Ken really showed me that that really impressed me early on. Um, I, I think it's it's maybe the oldest topic in mathematics. I mean, it's you know I, I'm teaching you you took my number theory class. I'm teaching it again. Um, you know, we're still at the point in the class where even late in the class, there's things that are already in Euclid's elements, which are like three thousand years old. So like a lot of core things in this class that, that is still a serious upper level undergraduate class today are 3,000 years old. And even before that, like um, the Babylonians knew a lot about Pythagorean tri triples. And there's these things called the Plimpton tablets um, that are even much older than that. I don't know how many thousands of years old, let's say four or something like that. But um, people have always asked these kind of questions about, um, you know, properties of numbers and um, making little making observations about numbers. Um, you know, maybe for trade, but, but maybe just kind of for fun. Um, so because of that, maybe it, it, it's probably the oldest subject in mathematics and it's a very mature subject. Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of different branches of it and it kind of touches with, it kind of touches on or has applications to almost every other area of mathematics in some way. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I always found fascinating. So, so particular, you know, a lot of the questions, and that's one reason why amateurs are often drawn to it or why it's often a topic done in RUs, uh, research experiences for undergraduates, or I, you know, I advise a lot of undergraduates in research. And that's um, one thing that is really good about it is a lot of the problems are easy to state, but they become surprisingly deep, surprisingly quickly. Um, so, you know, when I was working, when I first took the class from Ken, when I 
started learning more about number theory. Um, one of the things he, he focused on in the class and what I was mainly doing in my research then was just about the theory of integer partitions, which I'm still um, working, especially the last couple of years, been, been working a lot on. Um, there's still a lot of very difficult unanswered questions, um, but they seem like something very simple. Um, an integer partition is just a way of writing a, a number as a sum of small and positive numbers, all whole numbers. So for example, um, there are five partitions of four. They are four itself, three plus one, two plus two, two plus one plus one, and then all ones, one plus one plus one plus one. And um, you can ask questions, if you count all of them, uh, all of the ways to do this, you call that the partition function. So okay. there are five ways to do this for the number four. So we call the partition function P and we say that P of four equals five. I see. Um, and there uh, are really amazing facts about this. If you, th if you study the sequence of numbers P of N, um, especially going back to this Indian mathematical genius Ramanujan, um, he discovered, for example, if you take any number which is of the form 5n plus 4, the number of partitions of that number is always a multiple of 5. So for instance, I said p of 4 is uh, 5, which is of course a multiple of 5. Um, but p of 9 is also a multiple of 5, and so is p of 14, and so is p of 99, and so is p of 999. Wow. Um, and this is a really surprising fact uh, and not really at all obvious. And you know, until the genius of someone like Ramanujan in, I guess, maybe 1919 or so, um, notice this, it really, uh, no one had really thought to look at these kind of questions before. Uh, and you can ask questions like, how quickly does the sequence of numbers grow? Um, that was also something, you know, Ramanujan was featured in a, in a major Hollywood film that actually, um, Ken Ono was the math, math main math advisor really? on. Um, and the, the main, uh, our story arc of the film, the main, like, um, driving action, um, the, the climax of the film is, um, Ramanujan and, and Hardy, when, when Ramanujan was in his short period in England before his tragic early death, mm -hmm. um, they solved this problem of uh, how many partition, approximately how many partitions of any number there are, and they gave a uh, an approximate formula that gets better and better as the number that you plug into the partition function grows. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, actually, I think the first uh, I've looked at this for for writing. Um, writing up expository stuff, but, uh, you know, Niels Bohr and uh, uh, some co-author, Kelker, who I don't know, um, they wrote the, one of the first, not, not very long after Harding Ramanujan, so I, but I guess maybe in the 30s or so, they wrote a paper on modeling large, nucle uh, large uh, atomic number nuclei uh, via the partition function. And, you know, they actually used this growth, approximate growth formula for the partition function. Um, in studying this, and of course there, there was interest at the time because one of the large uh, atomic number elements that you're interested in is uranium, and they were interested in studying things like nuclear physics and I guess building bombs for the for the war and things mm. like that. Um, but yeah, so there's close ties between you know the number of ways to count, uh, the number of ways to count these number of breakings up uh, are closely tied actually to physics models and specifically statistical mechanics. Interesting. And there's actually something in statistical mechanics called a partition function, which is like a different word, but also like partition functions for some collections of particles actually are counted by the ordinary partition function or other <laughs> related functions. And in physics, you actually want to know things like, um, you know, approximately how many ways are there, to, there to, to break, to do these kind of things, how many types of arrangements. And 
Um, you know, you mentioned black holes, you mentioned entropy, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that entropy measures is how many different configurations are there that are, that do some kind of thing or whatever. And the growth rate of things like partition functions are closely related to that. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Um, and, you know, you mentioned modular forms. That's exactly what I think modular forms are useful for and maybe why they, they actually show up a lot is um, we now know, uh, so I can say maybe what a modular form is roughly. A modular form is a function, okay? It, it, it's defined on some space of complex numbers, but, you know, it doesn't, I don't need to say very, say very much about why or whatever, you know, it's defined on some space, which is a non-Euclidean geometry. It's as a hyperbolic geometry. Um, but at its crux, it's really um, a flexible notion. Um, you know, in order to prove theorems, in order to state something in a textbook um, or, or in a research paper, you have to like formally define a space of objects that you can like actually study. But like, it, it's almost like it's a general philosophy. Um, and in general, it's, it's functions that have, uh, um, I like the way that uh, Barry Mazur put it, uh, they're functions that have infinitely many symmetries. Um, in fact, so many symmetries that it seems like such functions may, uh, should not or, or may not even exist, um, but in fact they do. Um, so, um, as uh, you mentioned uh, here, that they, they are functions that are um, translation invariant. So, the, this is a familiar property. Um, you know, sine function, sine and cosine. If you shift the argument by two pi, they're periodic. So. Mm. One one of the trans one of the infinitely many uh, tr uh, symmetries is that they're periodic, which is great because um, basically if you have nice functions which are periodic, they automatically have Fourier expansions, um, and that the expansion gives you uh, what is the nature of that expansion? Yeah. So, are you familiar with Fourier series? It's um, expanding things expanding things in terms of sines and cosines. Okay. So, an infinite summation of sine yes. and cosine waves to, essentially yes. to represent much more complicated functions yes exactly okay so um you know you may have heard of um i mean fourier series are all over in mathematics and, and also in computer science like the fast the, the fastest way that we know well actually this may not be true as of a couple years i don't know but oh, really? essentially the fastest way to multiply two whole numbers together is actually via some general version of fourier transforms and so maybe you've Heard this? I mean, it's at the core of so many computer algorithms, and it's been called the most important. The fast Fourier transform has been called the most important algorithm in computer science. Like, it's often cited in the in the uh, early days, like with CDs and um, uh, zip files and whatever. Like these kind of operations would not be you, you could, this kind of comp or, or digital cameras. Mm -hmm. They had very very limited computational power, but had to do complicated things. Um, and the existent being able to do computations, even just basic arithmetic, like multiplying whole numbers together, using the uh, using Fourier analysis was like absolutely essential to these things really working. And it's like in the everyday use of, of computers today. Um, but yeah, so they're famously thought of as like if you have a sound wave, um, which is composed of many different um, uh, many different components. Um, so, for example, there's like the opening chord in the Beatles' "Hard Day's Night," and there's this is this is one famous example. And there's many different instruments that are all playing at the same time. Um, you know, each of those instruments is playing some note, which maybe it has some primary frequency and it might have some overtones. Mm -hmm. You know, if some um, intervals like primarily octaves and thirds and fifths or whatever. Um, and so you have overall a sound wave, which is periodic. Um, 
but it's composed of all these different instruments and all the different complicated you know, timbre and overtones and whatever. Um, and Fourier analysis is a way to break down the the original wave as a as a as a sum of the you know increase uh, sum of different uh, components of all the different wavelengths and, and sort of the amplitude of contribution of all those different wavelengths. So you, you know people have actually done this with this specific example in this Beatles song and like found like okay th these are the instruments that were actually playing this note these are the notes they were playing um etc um, and you can identify notes you can identify instruments um so and that's you know so that's writing in terms of writing complicated waves in terms of simpler sines and cosines um and you, in general if you have functions that are periodic you can always write them as these infinite series of sines and cosines with different level with different um whole numbers of frequencies and then what the uh, and so modular forms have that symmetry, but then also infinitely more. But what's really nice about the translation and uh, writing in terms of these sines and cosines, which we call Fourier series, is um, they have coefficients in front of these, um, you know, corresponding to these amplitude different amplitudes or different wavelengths. Um, and these numbers are actually the things that usually count something that modular forms have applications to. So there's lots of sequences of whole numbers. Um, that occur in number theory and in physics, like the partition function, for example, and they are the Fourier co coefficients of a modular form. So if you have a sequence of numbers you want to study and you string them all up in a formal generating series, a formal sum of these sines and cosines, if it has all these, it, it's, autom it's kind of designed to be translation invariant because you're adding sines and cosines that are. But if it, by coincidence, has many more symmetries um, and lands on the world, this world of modularity, then you can prove a lot of other things about it. Um, so in the very, very simplest case, beyond the translation invariance or the periodicity, um, uh, the very simplest case, all of the symmetries are generated just by that one. And one other symmetry, which is just under um, x goes to minus 1 over x. Um, and this is really, really handy because, like I've mentioned in physics um, or in the partition function and many other cases, one of the primary things you can use modularity for is studying how quickly the sequence of numbers grows. I see. And it turns out that there's very general reasons that you can say um, that if you know, if you're in a nice enough situation and you have a sequence of numbers and you want to know how fast it grows, um, in, in sort of the Fourier variable, um, if you like, then that's sort of like a Taylor series expansion in that variable around zero. Um, and you want to know, uh, or, okay, there's different changes of variables you can do, but basically you want to know uh, in, in the ordinary, like as a function of x um, that you plug into the sine of cosines, that's sort of like, uh, it's in a sense an expansion around infinity. If you go all the way, um, if you imagine that you're in the plane and you go all the way up the imaginary axis, all the way to infinity, you're sort of expanding near infinity. Um, and it turns out if you understand the growth behavior of the function near the point zero instead of infinity, then you can know something strong about how quickly that sequence of numbers grows. And so the other transformation in modularity um, and, and classical basic modular forms is x goes to minus 1 over x. And that's exactly the transformation that connects 0 and infinity. Uh, 1 over infinity is 0, and 1 over 0 is infinity. Yes. So if you know something about the transformation under x goes to minus 1 over x, um, you can actually kind of connect zero and infinity, and that's often enough information to, I mean, the, the details are always kind of really hard, but like philosophically, that's what's going on. 
a lot of times that's enough information to show you how quickly um, the sequence of numbers grows. So like I study um, in particular a lot of these applications of modular forms to different fields where you need to be very flexible about what kinds of transformations you allow, what kinds of nice properties of the functions you require. Um, but the spirit is always that, um, um, that you want some nice-ish behavior as, uh, as you have these transformations. And that's one of the things where physics leads to a lot of the very exciting examples and what I do is a lot of the, they have certain symmetries that occur in physics that naturally manifest themselves as symmetries under these transformations on the modular side. But a lot of times on the physics side, um, the, the, the objects that they're interested in, you know, they have a different tool set and a different set of things they consider. Um, the objects they consider when you translate the symmetries into, you know, symmetries under x goes to x plus one or x goes to minus one over x. Um, these often will break the symmetry like a little bit. And from the physicist's point of view, the objects on the physics side kind of all look the same. You just know, they just know that like when you do this transformation, x goes to minus one over x, say, you get something that's very close to the original thing, but not quite. Um, and so that's where, where, you know, what I come in and, and have to be very flexible and applying things. Um, but a lot of the times, if you want to know something like how quickly does the sequence of numbers grow, just from the general principle that I was saying, um, if you know that under x goes to minus one over x, you don't have some fixed transformation that you would normally require for modular forms, but you get something, you, you know, it's fixed into this transformation up to something that's simpler or smaller, you know, of smaller growth or something that's easier to understand for some reason. Um, a lot of times that's good enough to actually do some applications. Um, and so what's exciting for me is it's kind of a two-way street where the physicists, uh, they, have question, they, they have questions like they want to know something about some sequence of numbers and sometimes I have the tools to solve them. But more generally, they come up with interesting examples that from the number theory side, you would not naturally discover, you would not naturally easily discover. Um, but once you really stare at their example and you like, you, you know, you have something that's a more convoluted or complicated um, generalization of the classical modular forms, um, then you look at it from the number theory point of view and you realize, okay, I can actually classify this behavior as some space of objects and then study it as a number theory object on its own and like develop the whole general theory there. And then it consistently produces new interesting examples um, that we wouldn't have found otherwise. That is extremely fascinating. I want to linger a little bit on, so you, you mentioned symmetry a lot. It's obviously something that is super important. Uh, I guess maybe the simplest conception of symmetry in my mind is something like a humble circle, which is infinitely symmetric about its center. Mm -hmm. So would you say, like, is it fair to say that kind of symmetry is directly proportional to, I guess, the, so like the more symmetry that you can identify in an object or in a space of objects, mm -hmm. the more like utility or applicability that comes with it, or like the more information you can extract from, uh, you know, some context that you want to apply this object that has symmetries to. Does, yeah. that, does that make the track? Yeah, well, I'll say that in, in mathematics in general, um, symmetry is kind of a unifying theme. Like, so of course, I, I've mentioned symmetry a lot as a very powerful tool. Um, and that's where I think that like the physics has led to really exciting new, more exotic things in what I do is that you, you don't have symmetry. The symmetry is broken, but only a little bit. So it's about quantifying or classifying what does only a little bit mean or what does symmetry up to something simpler. 
Um, and there you do have a lot less power to do stuff directly and it's more complicated to figure out, but because these things actually show up like in the universe, like, well, at least if you believe string theory is true, which is maybe debatable, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have, I don't pass judgment on that. I, I just consider it for myself, just an interesting theory. Uh, um, you know, real life and nature are complicated. They have things that have broke, slightly broken symmetries or they have this, they have things that really energy levels or whatever that exponentially grow that we shouldn't normally allow that when you translate things um, to the number theory side, it breaks these symmetries. Um, but yeah, the symmetry is kind of essential to be able to extract anything. Um, and that's just much of mathematics is about noticing and, and, and exploiting symmetries or either symmetries or connections between different fields of mathematics that at first didn't seem like they're connected, but mm -hmm. that's much of the story of 20th century mathematics is there, you know, there's all these different branches of mathematics, but if you look at like the broad progress of mathematics um, and, you know, all of the top level work, all the field, a lot of the fields medals and things, you know, it's about connecting disparate fields of mathematics that did not seem like they're connected. Um, and, you know, slowly we're starting to, you know, slowly people start to find all these connections between different fields and, that's a lot of the times you'll have two things that there'll be one problem in one field that's secretly connected to some other field. Um, and, you know, one of the fields, one of the areas may have symmetries, for example, that are um, not visible on the other side, and you can automatically port those symmetries over to, to the other side. Um, and yeah, that's the story of a lot of mathematics, really. Okay, well, so that kind of sparked maybe like a kind of like a multi-headed question, like a Hydra question. So you might have to bear with me a little bit. So speaking on the kind of the ability and the power of drawing connections between seemingly disparate areas, I was mm -hmm. reading the bulletin. It has since passed. It was a, I think like a graph theory combinatoric seminar you gave in early December. And in the description or the abstract alone, you mentioned, I think four or five results. I don't remember, mm -hmm. you know, what fields they were in. But what I'm getting at is basically, can you maybe describe how a certain area, so your area of mathematics is number theory, other areas, uh, maybe like differential equations as, uh, as kind of is a whole other area of research. There's also like things like algebraic topology. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, I guess the, the, the word would be maybe be like bias or what, uh, what perspectives of different math disciplines uh, kind of like, what do those different areas bring to the table in exploring connections between, you know, again, seemingly disparate areas. And then to what extent is pure math research, uh, as I phrased it, excuse me, on the questions like a search through proof ingredient space. So maybe mm -hmm. you have a field, like some, some field of math where they produce a result and then you kind of see that result and you say, well, maybe how can I fit this into what I'm working on, which is a seemingly separate field. And you kind of, produce another result, you know, ad nauseum. And that is like the like hallmark of progress in math research. Yeah, well, I can maybe give a, a specific example um, that has been very influential in, in number theory and in modular forms recently. Um, so maybe the one of the biggest th results, one of the biggest, uh, most exciting new theorems uh, in maybe the last hundred years of, 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 definitely the last hundred years of number theory, if not, um, you know, of, of mathematics in my lifetime is the proof of Fermat's last theorem. Mm. Um, which, by Wiles? Uh, yes, by Wiles. Okay. And, uh, yeah, there's a whole, con there's a whole fascinating convoluted story wow. there. 
um, in the in the late '90s. You know, there, there's a little gap, and then uh, his students helped him finish it. Um, but however you say it, in, in the late '90s, um, and it was actually Wiles's uh, lifelong dream to prove the theorem. I think he discovered the theorem. He discovered the okay. It's called Fermat's last theorem, even though it wasn't a theorem. But he discovered the the claim, the conjecture. Um, when he was a, a young child, and then he was just obsessed with working on this problem. Wow. And um, he, his whole life he was obsessed with it, and then he kind of secretly worked on the problem um, for like seven years. You know, he had like some other papers that he would put out to sort of distract that he was working on this problem. Um, didn't, you know, sort of just dropped that it was that it was solved. Um, but the, you know, it was a conjecture for over 300 years. Maybe I could just briefly say what that Absolutely. is and how it was eventually solved by making connections between modular forms in another area, which was very surprising. Um, so uh, Fermat's last theorem is, is kind of like, if you start with uh, the Pythagorean triple equation, x squared plus y squared equals z squared, or people, I guess, like like to you know, mention in like cartoons or media references, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, I guess mm -hmm. it usually is uh, the letters, but these are the sides of a right triangle, uh, satisfy this relation, and of course there are um, many uh, there are many integer Pythagorean triples, um, whole number Pythagorean triples, and you learned in my class how to completely characterize them, right? Yes, I, uh, I do vaguely remember we uh, related maybe like s squares and uh, differences between A, B, and C, and like fractions of, of each of them to basically characterize or to generate triples. Yeah, exactly. Remember. Well, if you remember, it's if you have x squared plus y squared equals z squared, and you divide through by z, then you get something squared plus something squared equals one, and that's the equation of a circle. So it's really about finding fractional point, uh, points with rational uh, fractional co uh, coordinates on the unit circle, um, and then you can kind of find all of those by drawing, picking a point on the circle and drawing all lines with rational slope. And that's what the Greeks already did, and that's already what Euclid did in the elements, and completely classified all Pythagorean triples. So, you know, the famous one is three, first one is three, four, five, three squared plus four squared is five squared, um, etc. Yeah, so, but if you change x squared plus y squared equals z squared, if you just change that two to another, another bigger number, like x cubed plus y cubed equals z cubed, or in general, x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n, um, for some some fixed n bigger than two, um, Fermat uh, boldly claimed that uh, there are never any solutions, any inter any whole number solutions to this equation uh, ever again, um, unless one of the numbers is zero. So like you can take, uh, you know, two to the 10 plus zero is two to the 10, but that's kind of trivial. So we don't count that as a real solution. Um, so there's the Pythagorean triples, and then for exponents bigger than two, it should never happen again unless you have this absolutely trivial solution. Um, and that was an open conjecture for over 300 years. I mean, even it's mentioned many, you know, referenced many places like the Simpsons when Homer, um, he gets really smart or he goes to 3D world or something. There's these, you know, spoof, solu spoof fake solutions that if you type it on a, a pocket calculator and it only has like 10 digits or something, you know, the first 10 digits are correct or something like that. Um, yeah, and how Wiles actually proved it, well, um, there was a lot of work by many great mathematicians of Serre, uh, Ribbit, uh, etc. Um, there's a whole chain of ideas that reduce it to showing a connection between uh, modular forms, um, which are in the realm of what we would call analysis, which is like the fancy word for saying things like calculus and generalizations of calculus. Okay. So 
that means like modular forms are functions that are nice in some, you know, they have some nice prop calculus type properties and um, uh, these, you know, all these symmetry properties, that's really a property of like functions in analysis. Some notions um, of continuity, differentiability. Exactly. Yeah. So that's when I say nice function, it's always um, continuous or uh, they're always continuous. Uh, well, actually, uh, on my board here, I have some examples <laughs> of ones that are even allowed to be slightly discontinuous, but only on very small sets. Um, but yes, exactly. The, the, the classical modular forms are things that are that are differentiable in, in a complex variable sense. Um, and they have some growth rate property, which is really also what you call analysis, like calculus type properties. Um, so that's so modular forms are uh, in, um, inherently they're uh, a priori, they're kind of an analysis object. And there was this secret connection to the world of algebraic uh, of geometry, algebraic geometry. Um, and that was the that was the bridge that had to be connected to to prove for Maslow's theorem. And even that, um, there's actually a really recent popular math book um, which I, I just read. I, I, I you know I like to read other kinds of books for fun, not just read math. But this sure. one was, you know, it's kind of special. It was it's called the Ve Conjectures. The, um, I'm sorry, the Ve. Yes, okay. uh, W E I L. W E. And it was just published um, in the last year or two. Wow. And it's a, it's a lot uh, about. Um, it's actually not very much about the mathematics of it. It's about more the mathematicians and some of their life story and their crazy life stories. And um, Simone Weil was uh, his sister, and she died tragically young and was a famous philosopher. So she's also very famous in her own right, but outside of mathematics. So a lot of the book is about her and about contrasting her and her brother. Um, but anyway, this connection was uh, was made at this conference. So Weil was this famous mathematician, this famous French mathematician, and he was you know, imprisoned various places in the war, like for draft dodging and whatever. And they, they were Jewish and they were trying to escape, um, you know, escape the Nazis and whatever. And he did a lot of a lot of this work um, in making what what's called the vague conjectures, right, um, was, was done in, in, in prison. Um, but he actually, you know, he found that he could have a lot of isolated time to just sit and think about these problems. And they, they were kind of, they had these weird romantic ideas about, about life and stuff. Um, but when Wei was a little older, um, after the war, um, there was a, there was a uh, there were several Japanese mathematicians um, who were so actually um, my my advisor Ken Ono also wrote a book about his life recently, um, and he, he he refers to these mathematicians. Uh, he just wrote a memoir, and he has a lot of information about this conference and about what happened there. And and Ken always calls these kind of the the starving Japanese mathematicians. So it was after the war. Um, they were very desperate times. Uh, they, they were doing great mathematics, but they were completely isolated from the West and the rest of the mathematical community. Um, they, were, they were largely unknown, but they kind of heard about them. Um, and so he took a chance and he uh, went on this, he organized this conference there and, and met some of them. Wow. Um, and they were like, they, they, you know, they were really like tightening their belt. They were barely making it by from day to day. Um, and the story is that and, and Ken's father was one of these "Quote unquote starving mathematicians," and wow. um, shortly after this conference, they were sort of like they helped them sort of be discovered. And shortly after this, you know, several of them had tenured positions at Princeton and Harvard and whatever. And they they were like, you know, so we have you know, for example, Shimura, um, Shimura, uh, and well, Taniyama uh, um, tragically committed suicide um, not too too long after, but. Um, uh, some very very famous names in mathematics were sort of discovered at this conference, um, and but they were really so struggling that they 
um, they wanted to appear, you know, that this was like their big ch chance. So they kind of like skipped some meals, bought the nicest suit that they could afford. And that was like the one like wow. nice suit that they had or whatever and more to the conference. And um, anyway, at this conference, there were some discussions and they, they started formulating this conjecture about this connection between um, specifically the geometry thing that I have in mind is uh, called elliptic curves, um, mm -hmm. which are now in vogue because of the cryptography applications. So most, that's kind of the most, the most common crypto schemes that people are switching over to that like the NSA recommends or that maybe Google uses, um, uh, or, you know, certainly it's, it's like the one that's always using credit card chips because it's like efficient to do with small computation powers, elliptic curve cryptography. Um, but you know, they're, they're, they're essentially just curves of the shape X, uh, Y squared equals X cubed plus AX plus B. Um, and it turns out there's a secret connection between these elliptic curves and um, between modular forms, and they started conjecturing it there, uh, or they, they actually kind of conjectured it out of the conference. It's sort of a, I have to be careful, it's sort of a controversial thing whose names you attach to the conjecture, but the three wow. names are usually Shimura, Taniyama, and Bei, um, who were all present at this conference, and they noticed many small examples in the, uh, of, of connections in, in specific cases, and they started building this conjecture, which for a long time wasn't really clear that it really should be true or whether it should be you know true in many examples for example and i think even you know sarah is one of the most famous mathematicians um in in re, uh, and um he uh said what you know why should you believe that this is you know always true uh, but essentially it's if you look at these elliptic curves and you count the number of solutions that they have um modulo p um i, I guess i haven't explained what modular modulo means but if you sure you can look in other number systems than just the whole numbers. You look at the numbers modulo p, um, and if you count the number of points on this curve, instead of being infinite, it's a finite set. And um, if you look at this, and you can do it for any prime number p, um, and if you look at the number of solutions to this for all sets of primes p, and string that string together all of these point counts of, of this curve, this fixed curve for all of these things. Um, by the way, these are also looking at these solutions mod P is also how the crypto schemes are designed. Um, you can string it together in one object and it turns out that object is the same object as something you, something you get from the P-th Fourier coefficients of the modular form. So basically the, the number of points on this curve for every prime P should be essentially, um, you know, if you decorate it in the right way, it's, it's directly given by the P-th Fourier coefficient of some modular form that exists. Wow. So for Ma's last theorem, the proof in high uh, high level terms is basically um, suppose you had a solution x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n using that those numbers x y z you can build an example of an elliptic curve and it would have some really weird properties that don't seem like they would be possible like if you look at the number of point counts on these curves it doesn't seem plausible but in fact if you say it really is connected to a modular form using the the calculus of modular forms, you can actually prove that it really is impossible. And so that's what Wiles actually proved is that if you have this geometric thing, this elliptic curve, you actually have a modular form. So it's this really deep connection between um, uh, geometry uh, and analysis. That is extra, that just connected a few things for me. And I have, again, from your class and another, I actually took a cryptography class as a senior elective, but uh, the elliptic curve concept is is pretty fascinating, and 
I maybe want to just kind of like sneak a bonus question to just to linger sure. on elliptic curves before going into Ramanujan's work, which I see you have on your mug, which is excellent. Uh, so elliptic curves, you mentioned they're uh, pretty secure for the kind of lighter computational footprint. So it's some nice security properties, maybe even enhanced over like legacy crypto systems like RSA uh, and again, represented with uh, less resources, I guess you could say. Would you consider, and I guess underlying the, the hardness of you know, cracking an elliptic curve is the discrete logarithm problem where, mm -hmm. uh, again, I might butcher something here, but you have a group and you have a generator of the group and you're basically, uh, to crack an elliptic curve crypto system, you have to solve the discrete log problem, which basically tells you how many times you raised the generator, uh, the generating element to a number to equal like a selected element, mm -hmm. again, over a, um, modulo p so modulo being divide by the argument and then return the remainder right uh so do you know or are you aware of whether like an elliptic curve is quantum resistant or post-quantum acceptable and then uh lattice-based cryptography is another mm -hmm. thing that you mentioned briefly in your class one of the it's so it refers to if i understand correctly a family of uh i don't know if it's like hard problems or like uh, post or like lattice Crypto systems are kind of like groups of hard problems in themselves, one of them being the shortest vector problem, which is mm -hmm. basically like given a, uh, so given a lattice, which is I think defined on a Euclidean space, and then given a norm, uh, like an L2 norm, so like a generalization of the distance, like the distance function, uh, how do you find the shortest non-zero vector? Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, you know, somehow tied to securing your your data in some kind of online transaction how do those compare yeah. uh, how difficult is one versus the other yeah well i think you gave a great description of the discrete log problem and that was all uh correct uh yeah so as you, you mentioned we have um we we know how to break rsa if you have a sufficiently powerful quantum computer and this is something people are really worried about uh, especially even stuff that is secure now some nefarious person may be saving a lot of this information and waiting until you can crack it later. Um, but uh, yeah, so with elliptic curves, as you mentioned, I mean, you have a greater security for a smaller key size, which is why it's so useful for credit card chips because computation power on a little computer chip on a credit card is very tight. Um, but the, the elliptic curve algorithms we know, we, I don't think we know any that actually are known to be quantum resistant. And there are, there are fancier things. There's, there's ones involving you mentioned discrete log problem uh, on elliptic curves and point counts, uh, these elliptic curves modulo P. Um, there are fancier ones that involve sort of collections of, of functions between elliptic curves, and, and some of them have, have greater security properties, and some of these lattice-based ones, like occasionally people will have one and uh, a new one, and they'll say, okay, this is, you know, maybe quantum resistant until someone can find a quantum algorithm that will, that will crack it. Um, and that's kind of the holy grail, but we haven't really obtained that yet. Um, but it's it's not like so I guess it's I, I don't have an opinion whether that's going to be possible or not I mean, I think nobody's found one yet and people keep having candidates and then someone else keeps breaking them um, Who knows what the NSA has or, or whatever sure? Um, but yeah, so the, the ones we know about don't don't seem to be they're not quantum resistant um, The other thing that's really good about them besides the, the small key size Which is really great for speeding up computation size and, and everything as well um, is that they are not as susceptible to common attacks. So the security of RSA is based on 
Um, just like, you know, just like the discrete log problem, it's the security of the crypto scheme is based on the fact that it's easy to do a, some operation in one direction and hard to do in the other. So it's very easy to multiply two numbers together. I mentioned fast Fourier transform. That's like the fastest or essentially the fastest way to do it. Um, and it's very hard to take a number and factor it into primes. Um, but so our, the RSA, your secret key that you, in this public key cryptography, private key, public key cryptography, the secret key you have um, is basically a, a set of two prime numbers and the public key is like the product of those two prime numbers and you can some more information. Mm -hmm. um, and breaking RSA is, is essentially equivalent to uh, factoring the public key that you present, the, the two product of two prime factors, finding the two prime factors. Um, but the issue is that many people use RSA and there's many new keys being produced on the internet all the time. And there's lots of, there's, there's some common attacks. For example, um, there's this common modulus one where if you use the same primes as somebody else, basically you're screwed. And so there, there, there can be, and there are bots on the internet that just go and compare lots of people's keys. And you can use the, if you remember from class, you know, the Euclidean algorithm. Yes. Uh, so it, it, if they happen, if there, someone else happens to use the same key as you, um, and then you can in logarithmic time, so extremely fast, mm -hmm. um, break the key for both of them, for both of them. And so if it, you know, it, it just, there's not so many ways of producing we have certain we have, everybody's also using the same algorithms and producing primes that are about the same size to produce these private keys and there could be millions or billions of them produced a second and so they, they, these can be broken all the time and with elliptic curves um, you can use you know the sort of the information of the key is generated by a particular elliptic curve you pick in a particular prime and it doesn't matter if you use the same elliptic curve as somebody else um, in fact the NSA for you know has like a, a recommended one they say you can use this elliptic curve for cryptography um although you have to be maybe careful with that and maybe for for legal purposes or whatever you, you can't say it's exactly proven but it's highly suspected it's very strongly suspected that an elliptic curve they recommended for general public use before had sort of a backdoor or, so you you don't mm -hmm. know that they don't know so that there might not be some extra information they know about this curve some extra symmetry mm -hmm. that allows them to do stuff with it so maybe that's not a good idea, um, <laughs> but uh, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter if you use the same uh, elliptic curve as someone else. And the other really great thing is, um, you know, you mentioned the, the discrete log problem, which is you know kind of iterating some operation over and over again and asking how you can uh, do it or know how many times you've done it. Um, with mod, you know, the classical uh, crypto schemes like RSA or like the classical Algamal um, for key exchange, etc., Diffie-Hellman, whatever. Um, there, you know, you're multiplying numbers mod p, and so you, as you as you mentioned, you multiply two whole numbers together, then you divide by p with, and look look at the remainder. Um, but if you, so, if you take two two numbers that are small and you multiply them, their product is still small mod p. So, for example, you might be taking some huge prime. Your prime might be a couple hundred digits long. So, if you multiply two small numbers together, there's no even consideration of um, taking the remainder when you divide by p, it's just, you know, product of two small numbers is small. Um, so, you know, if you're taking, you could take like uh, 2 modulo 101, you take, you know, you take 2 cubed, it's still just 8, it's still a small number. Um, it doesn't matter, it's still smaller than 101, so the modular arithmetic doesn't even matter. Um, with elliptic curves, there's no kind of correlation between taking a, a small point, which maybe means has like, small number coordinates or if they're they're fractions the, the the numerators and denominators are small you can take small multiples of small points 
and it's basically random um, how big the coordinates are. They can yeah. be arbitrary, as complex as you like, and they, they get complex very, very quickly. Um, and so you can take a point, like you could take some small point in a curve, like three comma four, and you multiply it by two, and the coordinates might be absolutely enormous. They might be hundreds of digits long or something like that. And so, that, uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, oh no, go ahead. The, uh, so, so for the listeners, I first, I also forgot to mention, I, I wish there was a visual element to this because this has all been super fascinating, but elliptic curve, it's kind of like, uh, what I jump to for whatever reason is the image of like a binder clip where you kind of like have the two metal pieces on the side and then you, you know, turn that on its side and it's kind of like this horseshoe looking thing. And it just kind of like the two prongs of, of that mm -hmm. horseshoe, like shoot off to infinity. And as you mentioned, like adding, uh, coordinates on that curve, you're basically taking uh, like a straight line across the curve, or I don't remember if it's like a tangent slope and mapping across. Yeah, if you have two points on the curve, um, you add them by taking a line through those two points, and it turns out basically because I, I gave I mentioned the equation of the curve before, but it's a degree three polynomial. So it turns out it's a general fact that if you take intersect a line in a degree three thing, there are three intersection points. And you've drawn the line through two of them, so there's a third intersection somewhere. And then if you take that intersection point and then you reflect it mm -hmm. across the x-axis, that's the sum of the two points. Wow. But that geometric procedure really scrambles up the coordinates much more than like modular arithmetic does. So I guess at the core, again, to maybe close this out before shifting gears to Ramanujan, it's basically the maybe like a manifestation of the pigeonhole problem where in RSA you're choosing a bunch of large moduli which are... I mean, there's, I guess, infinite primes, but there's finitely many moduli being used on the internet. Whereas uh, on an elliptic curve, as you noted, you can have the same elliptic curve, but the space of points that exist on that curve and that are reached via this uh, special funky like point mm -hmm. addition operation yeah. is a lot larger of a space than or yeah. like less conducive to collision, you might say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's much more. It's much more the. The operation is much more unpredictable and, and wild, and it's just not susceptible. Although none of the classical computer attacks in RSA are like actually computationally efficient, um, you know there are some, and like the the ones that might have some applicability in RSA just have like no applicability in, in the elliptic curve cryptography. Wow. So I guess remains to be seen what comes of that, but very fascinating kind of connections there. Okay. So shifting gears to Ramanujan arguably the godfather of number theory. Uh, oh, I'd love to know another if there is, but you mentioned George Andrews, who basically discovered or rediscovered Ramanujan's last, uh, so his lost notebook, I should say, and this was uh, in the late 70s. And he has since basically produced a lot of work based on what was in that notebook. So more specifically, uh, again, I claim no knowledge about what these concepts are, but Q-series and mock theta functions, uh, again, just a quick Wikipedia search would tell you that mock theta functions can be used to calculate the entropy of black holes. I'm just getting at that Ramanujan was obviously uh, a distinguished or elite mathematical mind, and again, as you mentioned, tragically passed away. Is there anything, I guess, like interesting in the math community or... Uh, any type of like, not conspiracy, if that can, like, not to connote anything negative, but kind of just like, where did this mathematical miracle of his notebook come from? Um, what is a mock theta function? Sure. Uh, 
how does that kind of all um, play? Yeah, so I, I'd have to say, I don't know if I'd say Ramanujan is necessarily the godfather of, of all of number theory. I mean, we should also, um, you know, there's Euler and Gauss and, and Riemann. Okay. Uh, uh, of course, of, of Riemann hypothesis fame. But uh, he's kind of the godfather of, like, the kind of, of the kind of number theory that I do, like, my entire career and many of my colleagues, like, all of our careers, well, I don't know if they wouldn't exist, but the type of stuff we do wouldn't exist without him. Um, and entire entire fields of math, even just like some some specific lines in some of his papers, inspired entire fields entire fields of mathematics and, and physics and the connections between them. Um, and as you you know, he only really he did all this in like five years in England in his twenties. You know, in his twenties and early he died at thirty two. Um, but yeah, I can say you ask where does the lost notebook come from? That's a that's a great story in itself. Have you heard a little bit about the kind of romantic story of its discovery? Not well. So, I re, if I recall correctly from the Wikipedia page, it was like got into the hands of a professor at some university, mm-hmm. and then it was locked in a attic or something, and then yeah. someone rediscovered it, and Andrews had known about it or was looking for it. But I'd yeah. love to hear the property. Yeah, details. sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and the mock theta functions were proposed in Ramanujan's last letter, um, which he wrote a couple months before he died. He he was very sick. He when he, he got very sick and he went back to India. And then he died not too long after. Um, and he wrote this very strange, just couple of page letter to Hardy, um, where he said, I, you know, I've discovered um, 18, 18 or 19 functions. Um, and I call them mock theta functions. Here's the functions. And here's a couple of details about one of them. And um, it, it took 80 years until it was understood what those functions were. Turns out, I mentioned, you know, failure of symmetry, basically. They're, they're things that their symmetry uh, they, they transform like modular forms, but only up to something that's a, a certain integral of a classical modular form. So only up to something simpler that was more classically understood. Um, and and Spagers in his PhD thesis um, finally established this, but he, that in, in 2001. But even then, you know, Ramanujan's uh, Ken, uh, myself, and Michael Griffin actually proved Ramanujan's original claim that his sat, uh, functions satisfy. The, the properties that he claimed they satisfy, he was trying to characterize what was special about them. And although um, his characterization isn't really very precise in that there are things that I wouldn't call mock theta functions that would satisfy his definition, mm. uh, it was a, it was his 125th birthday. So we did that as a little birthday present for him. Wow. Um, but anyway, so he it, it was discovered, as you said, the, the lead up to this breakthrough of Swayers, which is now, it's like one of the most cited, uh, it's like the most cited uh, paper in thesis, whatever. Uh, in our field, and it's like completely generated the entire field that I that I work in, in some sense. Um, uh, the lead up to that was because of the work of, of uh, first, I guess, Watson and, and Andrews and Hickerson and Burnt and others, um, and it really took off, as you said, in the in the '70s when when George discovered these lost notebooks. Um, and I have to say, uh, you know, I have the collection here of, of all the lost notebooks. Um, it, it's kind of the it's kind of the culmination of the life's uh, of the life's work of, of well George has done many things but um, of George and, and I should mention Bruce Burnt by name as well um, they took on kind of together the, the project of taking every single item in all of these notebooks um, and many of it's uh, much of it is incomplete and very hard you know the handwriting if you look at a picture uh, you know it's almost impossible to read some parts and there's like no proofs it's it's Ramanujan was like notoriously just you know would just spit out formulas and spit out lots of stuff without mm. uh, without a lot of formal proof. But even this was meant for his personal use, so it's even harder than that. 
Um, and they, so what they have accomplished in this um, decades long project is they finally proven, mathematically proven every single claim in the lost notebook, which is this monumental achievement. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, it was sort of, it's called the lost notebook because, um, you know, so Ramanujan just wrote this letter um, with, without any explanation and many people uh, like Hardy, uh, for instance, Hardy and then, and then Watson in the 30s, um, they tried to figure out what was, uh, what was going on with this letter, but they didn't have a lot other than these examples. And it turned out Ramanujan had a lot more details in these notebooks and um, they passed through various hands. At one point they were, uh, they were in the state of one mathematician and this mathematician died and, and he was a notorious hoarder. And so, you know, people were going, when his estate was settled, they were going through his house. And, um, you know, there's this story of um, sort of digging through piles of piles of uh, the entire room filled up, you know, I don't know how high, whatever, just with random papers. And you would stick your hand, there was like limited time and the rest was going to be burned. So wow. there was kind of like stick, so you know, another mathematician knew that there should be some important stuff here and just was like at random digging it, sticking his hands in, pulling out whatever he finds. And he said it was equally likely that you'd find a 10 year old receipt or, you know, some scribble or whatever. And he just would dig through all these things and he randomly found this and stowed it away in the, um, in the library at Trinity College. Um, and then, so the, the, there's, you know, so there was a safe from being burned and then I think it was, it was stored there. And then it was like also, not really being used of the library was also considering getting rid of it. And then it was also saved by another person. And wow. then George finally discovered it. He, he got very lucky. He, um, so much time had passed that nobody had really solved the mystery of what these mock data functions were. Um, uh, that George was, uh, one of, one of the only people in the world that was uniquely poised to discover these and know what to do with them. Um, so he wrote his PhD thesis on the mock data functions. Um, and so, and he was really kind of the one of the only people again working on it still. Um, so he knew them well, and, and he knew about the work of Ramanujan and, and everything. And then he was he 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 had heard of, of their existence, um, and he had sort of a suspicion. And at the time, there was this you know airline prices used to work very differently. So he was he was going to Europe, and he it made a lot more sense for the prices to stay for like a lot, a longer period of time rather mm -hmm. than just going for a week or something. So he stayed like an extra couple weeks or something. Um, and he had heard this. So he really only stayed the extra time um, besides some, um, some other thing that he was doing because of the, the way the ticket prices worked. And mm -hmm. then he heard this, so he had this bit of extra time and he just kind of, you know, went to the library and, and looked around for it and, and found it. And he was one of the only people in the world that would be, you know, it's kind of a mess of very difficult to read handwriting of random formulas that kind of stop in the middle of the page and whatever. And he was uh, one of the only people that would recognize what this really was. And, and because he had just done his thesis on it, he recognized the mock, he recognized the mock data functions um, and then sort of brought these notebooks to light. Uh, and then he started looking through all the additional details of what Ramanujan had done with this and picking up little clues of, you know, essentially the, the answer to the mystery again is there's this missing symmetry or this, this way to add something back in to fix the symmetry. And, um, you know, that had to wait until 2001 until the work of Swagers um, to finally f completely figure out the picture of what that was, but it was the work of George and his collaborators over the, over the decades between the seventies and, and the, and the late nineties um, and early two thousands, which gave lots of, lots of extracting information from the lost notebook and generating new examples and figuring out little snippets of, um, 
pieces of the symmetry, what we now know are pieces of the symmetry, uh, the, the slightly broken symmetry um, that were there. That is a fascinating story. It's almost, there's something like mystical about the conditions under which it was salvaged that you mentioned, where it was kind of that funky possibility of, oh, this is a receipt, and oh, this is something that will fundamentally change our mm -hmm. understanding of the universe, like dare I say, uh, since it was not burned and it was, you know, kept from place to place uh, over that period. Yeah, and I want to say that that would have eventually been, I want to say that there's such natural objects in math and physics that eventually it would have been discovered, mm -hmm. but I can't say whether that would have, what would have happened if this discovery wasn't made. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I want to say that at some point in the future, humanity would have figured this out again, but uh, would that have happened by, by now, even more than 20 years later, mm. um, after Swagger's thesis, would that have happened by now or would it be another 100 years from now? I, I really, I can't guess. That's that's also a really intriguing idea and actually a great segue to what I, one thing I wanted to touch on before uh, moving to the next topic and then wrapping up, but kind of this dichotomy that you mentioned of Ramana John's notebook was discovered. What if it wasn't? How far would we postpone? Or, you know, we'd have like a math winter or something, uh, at least in the context of what his notebook covered. Um, so there's there's obviously that aspect, which is great that his notebook was found. Uh, then there's also kind of this notion of, uh, you know, is, so would a complete and thorough understanding of, uh, say, something like the distribution of prime numbers, so a proof of the Riemann hypothesis, would that basically uh, be, how big of a win would that be for number theory? Would that give us, you know, some kind of like deep understanding of our universe? Uh, like how hard is the Re the Riemann hypothesis, which is uh, basically, I think it's, is it like this, the complex solutions of X squared plus C all lie, or no, not, that's that's the Mandelbrot set. It's uh, the zeta function. So the mm -hmm. zeros of the zeta function lie on the critical strip, which is, mm -hmm from zero to one half on the complex plane mm -hmm. or well we know all the okay there's some trivial zeros of this so there's the zeta function which um, i mentioned euler and that's what one of the things i was thinking of him as a godfather of number theory mm. uh, it's called the riemann zeta function although euler actually knew quite a lot of things about it already um, and in fact knew for instance that this function um, uh, can be factored into prime so maybe i can say a little bit about mm -hmm. so it's kind of uh it's, it's a series that actually it's a it's an infinite series that you actually usually encounter in calculus i guess in calculus two um it's the sum of one over n to the s so for example um sum of one over n squared would be the value of the zeta function at two um which also euler solved it was this famous uh really old problem at the time called the basil problem which is what is the sum of one over n squared which is 1 plus 1 over 4 plus 1 over 9 plus 1 over 16, etc. Mm. Turns out the answer is pi squared over 6, um, which Euler used. Naturally. You can use Fourier analysis to prove these kind of things, okay. uh, in a sense. Um, but, uh, and, and you learn in calculus that if you have the sum of 1 over n to the s, and, and s is real, um, then this converges if and only if uh, s is bigger than 1. Or it converges for s bigger than one. S equals one. That's the sum of reciprocals of all the positive integers. And that's the harmonic series which diverges, like like you learn it in calculus. Okay. Um, and so it turns out there's a way to extend this number. It only kind of makes sense for uh, 
let's say in, in a right half plane, if you draw a, a vertical line at one uh, and you look to the right of that, the series is, is nicely convergent. You would learn the calculus is nicely convergent. Um, uh, and otherwise it's not, but it turns out there's a way to redefine this that gives you a, um, in, in a continuation. Um, and it turns out it's a unique, essentially unique continuation, right? Um, to all of the plane, um, except that it, it has, there's this harmonic series you learn about in calculus. It still has a singularity. It still blows up at S equals one, but all the rest of the points, it's nicely defined at. Okay. Um, and when you prove this, um, along, uh, you, at the same time that you prove this continuation, you prove a functional equation which exactly relates the values at s and at 1 minus s. So there's a special hidden symmetry there. Um, and that automatically implies that you have some special zeros at some negative integers. Um, okay, and those are called the trivial ones, so we ignore those. And you mentioned the critical strip, which is the region between 0 and uh, a vertical line at 0 and a vertical line at 1. And um, the reason that's so special is you have the symmetry s goes to 1 minus s. And the, um, I like the way that I saw a talk by this mathematician, this number theorist, uh, Andrew Granville. And he called to the right of the, the one line, um, you call this, uh, um, he calls this combinatorial land because it is just the series that you see in calculus. You can do a lot of stuff very simply because of that. Mm -hmm. But anywhere else is defined as some complicated integral, which is not easy at all to understand. If you're to the left of zero, that's the reflection under s goes to 1 minus s of the combinatorial land, so we know it well. I see. And in between 0 and 1, you can't sort of get back to this calculus 2 series. Um, you have to really deal with describing this as some kind of complicated uh, contour integral. Um, and in the very center of that strip is the line where uh, vertical line at, at 1 half, which is um, the center line of the symmetry of s equals 1 minus s, that's s equals a half. Yes. Um, so it's the center of the symmetry. And um, so we know the zeros line up. If there's a zero at s, there's a zero at one minus s. Um, and if it's at one half, then it, you know, it just goes back to itself. It doesn't apply a second zero. Um, and the Riemann hypothesis states that all of the zeros lie precisely at the center line of this symmetry. Okay. Um, that was very helpful. I think I would have taken a lot more time to even gather that just in my own reading. So I have a much better picture now. Yeah, yeah. Although it is it is not easy necessarily. You have to actually know some complex analysis to define this. So it's okay. It's one of these things. It's not actually easy to necessarily define what it actually means. But if you have a little bit of complex analysis, that's roughly what it is. And it turns out that um, the zeta function already known to Euler has a, pro uh, a different formula as a product over primes. Um, and so it already hints that there's some stuff going on with prime numbers. But what Re what Riemann did, he wrote he wasn't really a number theorist, and he wrote only one paper in number theory, and it was very short. It was only I don't know, like five pages or under ten pages or something. But it's like the the best paper in number theory ever. Um, is he wrote a formula for counting the number of prime numbers up to x, how many there are. Um, there, there's basically an exact formula connecting um, these prime counting functions to the to the, with the location of the zeros of the Riemann zeta function. Um, and uh, I think you were maybe going to ask about the prime number theorem. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I guess, what, so what would we get from proving the Riemann hypothesis? And does that directly translate to a full understanding of how prime numbers are distributed? Yeah. So what we know is, so Riemann, 
was, I think uh, he was considering how to count how many primes there are up to X. So I mentioned, you know, the first real proof I saw heard in math, which is Euclid's proof that there's infinitely many primes. The next question you can ask is, okay, there's infinitely many, but like, as you say, how many, how, you, you can ask many questions about how they're distributed. And the first one is, if I take some large bound X, how many primes are there up to X? Um, so like up to a million, up to a billion, et cetera. Um, and lots of famous mathematicians considered this and several very famous mathematicians actually made incorrect conjectures about this. Wow. Um, Gauss was the first to really give the correct conjecture, which is that the approximate number up to X is X divided by the natural logarithm of X. So if you think about it as a proportion, the proportion of all whole numbers up to X that are prime is about one over the logarithm of X, which eventually goes to zero because the logarithm goes to infinity, but very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, so that we, in a sense, say that if you look in a, in a, towards infinity, 0% of all whole numbers are prime. But if you have a small number, like, like less than a Google or something, like not even very small numbers, many of the numbers for a while tend to be prime. Um, but the proportion is shrinking. So if I asked how many primes are there up to a Google, it's, uh, or how many of the, what, if I pick a number from one to Google at random, what's the probability that it's prime? The answer is very close to one divided by the log of a Google. So, which is one over a hundred times the log logarithm of 10. Um, right, so the, uh, and so Riemann fell a little short of proving the prime number theorem, but the proof of the prime number theorem, which is that this approximation is true in some rigorous sense, um, is, is, is exactly based on the ideas of, of Riemann's theory and was kind of the first real uh, serious proof of something uh, outside of complex analysis using complex analysis and like really put complex analysis on the map as a subject um, and was directly using Riemann's ideas. And I mentioned the zeros in the critical strip. What you need to prove the prime number theorem is that there are no zeros ex precisely on the line at one. So if you can prove that there are no zeros exactly on the, on the edge of the critical strip, the furthest it could possibly be, mm -hmm. then you've proven the prime number theorem. And in fact, because uh, Riemann gave this exact formula in terms of, um, uh, for, for this counting function in terms of the zeros, um, the location of the, the zero, the furthest to the right of the critical line is precisely even a single one, even if it's way up and there's infinitely many zeros and all of them but one are on the line, wherever the one to the, the furthest to the right lives um, exactly tells you um, the growth rate, uh, 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 what the error term is in this estimate. So the number of primes up to X should be about one, should be about X over the logarithm of X. Um, and the error term is of the order, it's big O of um, X to the, um, X to the power of the real part of, of the furthest to the right zero. Um, so, the Riemann hypothesis is that all of them have real part equal to one half. So it's that. So it's the same uh, as saying that the error term in the uh, prime number theorem is approximately um, square root of x in growth. So it's about which is you know logarithm of x isn't that big. So it's about square root of the main term. Okay. Um, and but somehow you know it, it, it would be if there was literally one zero that was three quarters plus i times a billion. Or, uh, well, it's certainly been searched much higher than that, but if there was one zero off the line, which was three quarters plus 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the billion or something, mm -hmm. um, then the entire error estimate would be um, would be big O of X to the three quarters. Which would um, be a counterexample. Yeah. And, and we know that there are zeros with 
with real part equal to a half. So that's the best possible error term. So the Riemann hypothesis is equivalent and in, in, in a direct sense, like it's equivalent to many things, but this is what it was invented for. And in a very direct sense, the Riemann hypothesis is equivalent to the best possible error term in the prime number theorem is true. Okay. Um, but there would still be lots of things we wouldn't know about prime numbers. So, okay. uh, I mean, even like there's been a lot of uh, progress lately. There was a breakthrough result on gaps between prime numbers. Um, was that by chance the green tau theorem proof about the is it like arithmetic runs of so that's something slightly different okay um but this is well it was proven well only a few maybe it's like 10 years now um i was in grad school um uh, but uh, a relatively unknown mathematician who's now quite famous and just a couple months ago has another breakthrough thing that's still being checked which is uh, shocking what wow. um uh he proved that it, there are infinitely many pairs of prime numbers whose difference is less than a finite number. And I think that finite number is like 70 million. Um, what we expect, what's been, what's been conjectured for hundreds of years is that there are infinitely many twin primes which differ by two. So you mentioned Terry Tao. So Terry Tao, James Maynard, and a number of other people, there was this major internet campaign, this kind of collaborative inter, uh, internet campaign where some people are, uh, their names are known, some people are anonymous. It's, it's uh, called polymath. Um, they did a lot of numeric, they did a lot of optimization and they got the number 70 million down to like 200 something. Wow. Um, it's very far from proving that there's, but so anyway, that that's a, another story in itself, but mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, you ask about prime numbers, there's still lots of things we wouldn't know if we knew the Riemann hypothesis. Like okay. we would, we, we would still not know, are there infinitely many twin primes? One of the oldest prop questions about primes or, you know, many people like and know about the Fibonacci numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, there are questions like, are there infinitely many Fibonacci numbers that are prime? We wouldn't know the answers to these kind of questions. Oh, interesting. And you can dig much further into the, the structure of these zeros uh, on the critical line if they are on the critical line. So for a long time, mathematicians have really been kind of just assuming the Riemann hypothesis and then going further with it. Um, so, you know, Montgomery famously just bold, he was one of the first to really boldly just assume the Riemann hypothesis. What else can we say about the location of these zeros on this line, the finer distribution other than they're just on this line. And um, you know, you mentioned we didn't get to it, but Freeman Dyson and his role in mock theta functions. Dyson was a famous physicist um, and he, he passed away not very long, a couple years ago, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but Montgomery discussed with Dyson and uh, said, okay, he had this conjecture called the paracorrelation conjecture for um, sort of the finer structure of the distribution of, zero, of, of the zeros of the zeta function on the critical line. Um, and Dyson said, I've, you know, basically I've seen this before. Um, and it turns out it, it's the same type of behavior you would expect from eigenvalues of random matrices, um, that he had seen in physics. Um, so, so there's a lot of finer questions that even if we knew the Riemann hypothesis, we wouldn't know, we, we, we expect that much more is true about the distribution of these things and, and therefore about think, things like distributions of primes, that there should be this overarching theory of, um, now it's a big it's a big subject of random matrix models that really should be dictating the the precise distribution of these things and we're very far from proving those although that would might be if you might bet you might be willing to bet that the, these distributions dictated by these random matrices have something to do with how one might actually prove such a thing well wow. although i can't predict how you would and, and those are the those distributions are very very prominent in, in physics as well um and there's sort of this repulsion of zeros. There's lots of like feeling of, uh, of behavior of these zeros, which almost feels like things coming from physics. So if I were to bet, uh, I don't have, I don't want to make a real prediction, but if I were to bet, 
And I think a lot of people might bet that if there were a proof of the Riemann hypothesis in our lifetime, it might have something to do with physics ideas or directly be inspired by ideas from physics. Interesting. That is, I'm, like, I'm just like still processing and parsing that, but hopefully it's clear that that was my naivete just shining through there. Uh, so there's still a ton to be done. Uh, so just kind of to wrap up, I regret a little bit that I had glanced over it, but your favorite number is E raised to the pi times the square root of 163. Mm -hmm. And it's very nearly an integer. Mm -hmm. And I think I said it goes, it's like 2.6 to the 17th power. Yeah, 262-537-416-2647-4126-407-687-439-999-999-999-99-925, etc. Yes. So it definitely is your favorite number. Again, I mentioned in the notes that it can be parsed by someone with like a high school math education. How much complexity is kind of baked into that number? Why is it so close to an integer? Yeah. I guess in a nutshell, if it's even possible. Well, okay, so it's it's overarching the theory of what's called complex multiplication, which is a terrible name in a way because it's not like just multiplying but multiplying complex numbers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, uh, I can say that it's closely tied to, um, okay, so you know there's the, so there's actually on tomorrow in my number theory class, I'm going to prove the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, which I think is often taken for granted in, you know, middle school, you learn about prime factor, prime uh, primes and factoring into primes and doing pro- factor trees and whatever. Um, and you just assume if you have any whole number, you can factor it into primes and you can do so uniquely. Well, the, the fact that you can do so uniquely is a very, very special property of the integers um, and is not true in other number systems. And even if you study number systems involving equations involving only whole numbers, you're quickly led to consider these other, more complicated number systems. Um, for example, uh, you, you might want to factorize polynomials and you might need complex numbers to do so. So if you ask questions like, like Fermat's last theorem, um, if uh, th- there was a famous false proof of Fermat's last theorem, and the best known progress for a long time was kind of fixing up this false proof, but you can consider systems involving integers as well as some complex numbers that have some mathematical structure called a ring to them. Um, if those had unique, there's a notion of primes, things you can't break down any further. Mm-hmm. And if those had unique factorization into primes, essentially Fermat's last theorem would be almost easy to prove, almost trivial. But unfortunately, it's not true. So the easiest ones you can think of are taking the integers and, th- and adding in um, the smallest sets that you can get by adding, multiplying, and subtracting um, that are closed under those operations of the integers and some and square root of some number. Okay. So there's the the... So the first one is the Gaussian integers, which is uh, all the points in the plane of uh, with uh, integer, real, and complex and imaginary components. So it's the numbers of the form a plus bi, where a and b are whole numbers. Okay. So that one, it turns out, the primes have inf- uh, do have unique factorization. Um, but you can do something. The the famous first counter example you see is if you take the numbers of the form a plus b squared of minus five, and a and b are whole numbers. That does not have unique factorization, uh, and the the, num- the example is always six. Six equals two times three, but it's also one plus square root of minus five times one minus square root of minus five. And it turns out all four of those numbers are primes, so the factorization is not unique. So the one sixty three comes in um, because if you basically throw in the number square root of minus one sixty three, it turns out that you do again have unique factorization into primes. And that's the largest integer that if you take the square root of a negative number, that's the largest example 
um, that exists where you have this unique factorization, which was something that Gauss conjectured. Uh, oh, he, he did. Uh, and was only proven, I mean, somehow everything goes back to Gauss. It's like music where everything goes back to Bach somehow. <laughs> um, uh, it was only proven by uh, uh, by Harold Stark. Or Higner was like a kind of a, a high school teacher almost, or like not a well-known mathematician. And he had a proof, although it, had, it wasn't like fully there. And not everybody fully believed it. And, and Harold Stark um, fully completed the proof, but it only, only, you know, in the in the last decades has this actually been proven that 163 is the big, biggest example where you have unique factorization into primes and it turns out that there's a very special modular form um, such that the uh, when you plug in a value into this modular form um, you get a number uh, which is an integer if and only if that uh, system of numbers you study has unique factorization and you can very closely approximate this number is equal to an, expon an exponentially big number plus an integer plus exponentially small numbers and the overall sum of all those numbers in that Fourier series is a whole number. So you have the first number that you, you have the exponential approximation of is you have e to the pi squared of 163 and then it's plus 744 plus exponentially small numbers is an integer. So that's, that's where it, it comes in. So that's why to whatever 30, 30 40, something like that uh, decimal places, it is a whole number. That's incredible. I mean, I have to... But it's not easy to it's not easy to prove any of these connections. It would be... You, you would need a couple years of graduate number theory to prove the connections. That okay. Said, so. And the, the theory, I guess just the name, so for my own research, the, the theory that Hilbert considers to be the most beautiful in all of science that is related to that, mm -hmm. uh, was that... Or did you mention... Uh, yeah, that's that's called the theory of complex. That's the one okay. that's called the theory of complex multiplication. Got it. Okay. Which is something to do with elliptic curves that have extra symmetry more than you would normally expect. So, in addition to, well, is it true? Yeah, it is true that there's symmetry about the x-axis, but even more so. You're saying? Yeah. Okay. So, so there's yeah. If you look at the group structure, yeah. If you look at, well, okay, maybe that's getting a little okay. Okay. But yeah, there's there's extra symmetry attached to the elliptic curves that you don't usually have. I see. Well, yeah, I guess the worst case is you might be hearing from me via email. But uh, so moving on to our last questions, uh, there's been a lot of really maybe interesting and maybe concerning kind of buzz around AI recently. Uh, I guess most recently or in the public eye, there's been ChatGPT, which is this what's called a large language model, which kind of has this ability to produce perceptually intelligible responses to a variety of questions, anything from you know, planning a trip to giving recipes for ingredients in your fridge to like uh, elucidating or clarifying concepts. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the potency or the virulence of combining something like a large language model, uh, mm -hmm. plugging it into or interfacing it with something like uh, Sage, which as far as I understand is like the lingua franca of doing like computer checks, which you note in uh, some of your course notes. So is it more useful or... Uh, I guess like scary to have maybe an AI system that evades human interpretability, maybe assisting in proofs or basically coming yeah. to certain math conclusions. Well, I've uh, played around with Chat G GPT myself a little bit, and the, what's the other related one? The Dal Dolly, yeah. Dolly, the image, uh, the image one. That's it's fun. I, I've done other some some fun things with it just for just for yeah just for the sake of fun. Uh, I did actually last semester take one of the problems from one of my exams and give it to it and see what it gave. Um, it wasn't really a particularly good answer. I mean, I don't okay. think Chat G, 
ChatGPT is really quite there yet for actually doing real proofs. It, okay. It's really just kind of processing language. And if it's something that's written about in many sources online, it can like kind of cobble together something that is roughly the right words or <laughs> sure. something like that. It kind of roughly makes sense. Um, I mean, it is it is really incredible some of the things it's doing. Um, there is actually a really uh, important program in mathematics of um, formalizing proofs and, and, and uh, doing more computer-aided proofs. Um, one of the, there's a really big thing called uh, homotopy type theory, which has been like kind of this uh, big program um, run by uh, one of the people, he, he was a Fields medalist and, and a different field of pure math and got very interested in this redefining um, the, the, the logic uh, at the basis of pure mathematics is, um, in a way that builds in more of the intuitive sort of maps between different things besides uh, in, in a direct fashion that goes beyond the sort of traditional set theory way of doing things. Okay. Um, and there's some hope that that could really be used in computer assistant proofs, um, both for, you know, there's large programs in mathematics where the proofs have only been checked by a few people, which is a little concerning. And you want to like, it's like a race to formalize these things um, and formally check them by computer before all the people that know that area kind of die. Because mm-hmm. um, there's not a lot of reward for young people to learn these, you know, um, hundred, several hundred pa- uh, paper proofs of things that are established mathematics. Um, and as a tool uh, for hopefully in the future, um, it, it could be a tool where uh, human mathematicians work alongside computers to help check little cases or to help discover and, and verify proofs. Um, and I and I don't I, I don't again want I don't know a lot about that or want to make specific predictions about that. But I I wouldn't be surprised if in the next couple of decades, like um, computer computer assisted proofs um, could really it could save you a lot of it could save I think people should be open to the possibility of working along with the computer. I don't, I don't know that they're going to replace uh, mathematicians uh, yet. I mean, sure. we still, we're still there as well to to answer the uh, one. I don't think the software is there yet, but also we're still there to a- ask what are the interesting questions. And, mm-hmm. um, but I could imagine a scenario where uh, over time, more and more mathematicians could start. There could be tools. Um, I mean, AI is growing fast, always faster than. We seem to expect, I guess, mm-hmm. um, it, it could be really a useful tool um, in helping helping us verify our proofs. Um, maybe that could help solve the issue. You know, sometimes there are long papers that theoretically there's a there's a referee that that uh, checks everything, but it's not always clear how well they do. And sure. this is a crisis in like psychology and lots of areas of science as, as well, right? But mm. um, how, how you know there are errors in the mathematical literature. Maybe that could really help with that or. Um, I could imagine it could be, yeah, again, helpful um, in doing things, but I, I don't know. And I don't know how long it would be until it could full. I don't know. I don't see it happening anytime soon that it's replacing us, but I, mm-hmm. you know, I could be wrong about that. Sure. Yeah. Just thought I'd uh, see what your uh, takes were on that. Just to wrap the, so you mentioned a few books, mostly math related. You also mm-hmm. alluded to music a little bit. Could you just briefly list uh, maybe a couple of your favorite non-math books and then maybe some activities that you enjoy sure. maybe outside of math, but not necessarily, you know, divorced of any type of math. I yeah. guess so like music is intimately related, but yeah, I guess I, I like, for some reason I seem to lately be drawn to books about, um, uh, about the science of animal intelligence. I don't know. I, I like books about how, how birds are smart and octopuses are smart for some reason. Excellent. I don't know. Um, I just read a book on uh, on the history of the appendix. 
Oh wow! Um, of, of appendixes, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, there was a, there was a whole discussion of whether it's appendixes and, or appendices, and it said appendices is for mathematicians. <laughs> Otherwise, it should be called appendixes. Um, but I don't know. Growing up, I was always really I read a lot um, in high school. Um, I read a, like I, I read a lot of classical literature. Then I, I read like uh, maybe three novels a week or something. I just wow. was really into it, and um, I. I guess I was always drawn to mythology and especially things that combine different mythologies. So I, I really liked uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Maybe that's one of my all-time favorites. And I, I wrote kind of a, I, I started writing an epic poem. I mean, I it would have been one of either 12 or 24 books of it. And I wrote maybe 20 or 30 pages. And I, wow. I kind of devoted like a lot of time for maybe six months writing that or something. But I, I was fully immersed and I liked the metam- Ovid's Metamorphoses and the Aeneid. And um, I, re- I really always liked that kind of thing. Um, I guess other things. I mean, I have a, I have a toddler now, so my I don't have a lot of time for for hobbies or anything mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. much. Uh, I mentioned Go, uh, the game of Go. I, I used to play that in, in college, and I still, uh, I've been trying to go to a Go club again a little bit in in Nashville, and I nice. can play online and stuff and enjoy that. Um, I uh, used to play a lot of piano. I've taken a, I, a little. I've fallen a little behind in that, but I, I really like. Uh, piano, especially sort of the the impressionists and Chopin and Rachmaninoff and stuff, uh, mm-hmm. um, and like to get more into that. And um, I also, my wife and I like to make uh, make cheese, and we got um, more and more advanced in our cheese making um, into more uh, eventually making more harder cheeses and, and building like a cheese press and oh, you know, wow. like a fridge modified in a garage. We have a bunch of equipment, but again, awesome. since the baby, like the cheese stuff, often. Uh, it might not be a ton of active time, but a lot of times you have to like devote six or seven hours where every 15 minutes you have to do something and it, it might be very time sensitive and that mm-hmm. has been hard to do, but mm-hmm. actually we're thinking about doing that again and, and maybe get the baby involved and stuff. So very cool. Well, yeah. Professor Roland, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. I look forward to replaying this to grab all the details and really appreciate all of your insights and your stories that you shared with me today. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Dr. Larry Rowland. Be sure to check out the timestamps in the description if you'd like to jump around. As always, thank you for your interest and your curiosity.